As we prepare to hear God's word, let's first pause to be still and quiet as we pray for God to open our hearts with a prayer for illumination. God, I thank you for the way you've gathered us here tonight. And we come and in our own way, but together are hungering for a word from you. And so may your word be our rule and your spirit our teacher and the glory, the beauty, the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ, our single concern. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our, our only scripture lesson for today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. And before we dive into this, I wanted to, to first ask a question and then kind of set the scene of what was going on up to this point. So the question that I want to ask is, what does it mean to be great or the greatest? Uh, the dictionary defines great as, as something or someone that is beyond just normal or average, something worthy of taking note. But the greatest, now that's a step beyond. That's being the best at something among your peers. Now we hold things or people in esteem as being the greatest when we say things like the Beatles were the greatest band or thing ever. Or Michael Jordan is still the greatest basketball player. We might do this particularly though for our own lives. Maybe by saying I want to be the best person in this workplace or the best teacher in this school or the greatest kid in this band. Or maybe you, like me, do this just for ourselves, saying, I, I, I want to be the greatest son or brother that I could be, or the greatest pastor that I can be, or the best fur dad that I can be. And this probably, probably looks a little different for you in your life, and I think this striving um, toward greatness and, and something really great is something good. And it's a natural thing to be, be great among our peers or something that we value. I think it comes out of our desire to live a beautiful life or to be noticed and gain status among others. But perhaps even more so, we long to live a beautiful life for God or to be noticed by God or to prove something to God. And I'm bringing this up today because in our passage, the disciples come running to Jesus, jockeying for position and saying, hey, hey Jesus, tell us who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what's the secret to being the highest ranking person in your rule and kingdom. So here we are, as the screens say, in Matthew 18. 
of Matthew's gospel. And this Jesus thing is well underway and in full swing. He has the crowds following him everywhere, and this is really quite a movement. And the disciples want to get the inside scoop or the inside track on how I get the prize at the end of the day. It's no surprise that they want to be the best of the best thing in town. But I also think they asked because there were so many conflicting narratives going on in that day. And the religious leaders that were supposed to be helping them weren't very helpful after all. The righteous rolling Pharisees were saying, following God's rules and perfect adherence to that would, would get you greatness. And the high society Sadducees were claiming perfect worship attendance, even on services like Ash Wednesday, is going to get you there. Meanwhile, there was this other guy named Herod, but he's his own special something, so we won't even dive into that. But worst of all were the Romans, who ruled and hovered over these Israelites. They proclaimed that those who were great were strong and harsh and powerfully masculine and machismo and dominated anyone else in order to show that they had the advantage in upper hand. These Romans were obsessed with badges of birthright and military office and conquest and political office and wealth and so much more. So these ideals of greatness were plastered in propaganda, noted in newsprint, and dominated the conversations of that day when those disciples approached Jesus. In previous chapters, Peter's even getting some right answers and like kind of getting some high esteem, and so the disciples are like, okay, we need, to, we need to step in and figure this thing out so that we don't miss out and miss the mark. So they ask him, who is the greatest in God's kingdom? And that's where we enter the story, and that's where we'll start here today. So starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So he called the child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter eternal life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
a child? Really, Jesus? A child? He knows the narratives of the day, and he just has to flip the script right on its head, doesn't he? To be the greatest is to be like a child? Jesus is essentially telling us to be littled. Well, Jesus, I've been belittled, and it's not much fun. Now, I understand the innocence of children is a beautiful and wonderful thing. But I've, I've also heard um, some, some parents say that they truly understood the doctrine of original sin once they became parents. So what's Jesus driving at? Well, while children are very much the center of, of our life today and, and we glorify them in our lives, and, and rightfully so, that is a, is a very different than what was happening in Jesus' day. In the ancient world, children were not the center of the family life, but rather they were on the margins. Parents cared for children, protected them, and valued them because they would one day grow up to provide economically and care for the parents once they became elderly. But by all means, children were powerless and insignificant and vulnerable too. So when Jesus places this child in the center of all of them and says, be like this, be the greatest in this way, I think he's pointing at two things. First, he's saying that you must unlearn what culture tells you in all those narratives. That greatness is about domination and superiority and getting that edge and advantage over people by any means. Instead, learn to embrace this alternative downward path marked with humility. The passage could otherwise be termed, humble thyself. Now, Jesus says this, but it's something that he is first living out in his own life and is asking us to do because of his example. In Philippians, Paul writes and he says that Christ, that God gave up this great place of power to empty himself and be wrapped in flesh, not to be found in the halls of power and in marble throne rooms, but go to the common and the lowly places and be the servant of all. And throughout his life, he lived for others, particularly those who were hurting, who were sick, who were misunderstood, who were kicked out of their homes. He lived to say that these lowly people were of greatest significance. Oftentimes, I find that he couldn't much tolerate those who were definitely self-assured, and he would rebuke those people and point them to correction in the same humble example that he was exhibiting. In other words, Jesus' invitation to greatness is an invitation to be like him, saying to us, you are great in God's sight when you stop seeing that you need to be at the center of the universe and recognizing that there's a certain power and joy in being humble. So this first point is about humility, but the second thing that I think he's really pointing to in our passage is that Jesus sees the people who are, who are of low esteem as particularly blessed and great in God's eyes. Jesus shifts the measure of greatness 
to not those in high places or in the center of the arenas, but to those on the margins. Jesus is dignifying the dirty, the brokenhearted, the has-been, the down-and-out, the sick, the lonely, and those who already feel like dirt and dust. And so I think when Jesus is talking about this, he's making a point to dignify those who feel like dirt. Jesus is humbling the haves and lifting up the have-nots. And so pursuing greatness is about learning this humility and dignity for ourselves and as a community. And I love this particular message that Jesus is, is speaking and inviting us towards. And I love hearing this message as we begin this Lenten journey. Now, I grew up Catholic, so um, I am quite familiar with this season being about, like, taking things away from ourselves and thinking that we need to abstain very harsh measures in order to prove something, perhaps, to ourselves or to God. And I think the practices of abstaining from things and fasting from things uh, can be a good thing. And I also think maybe adding some things and taking on some things, like serving others, can be a good thing, too. So embrace those practices, yes. But I'm wondering if you might also consider what it is and how you might spiritually be in need during the next 40 days in the way of humility or and or dignity. So we come in here at different points of our spiritual journey with Christ to the cross during these next 40 days. But might this Lent be an invitation to wrestle and strive on that downward path of humility? Rather than striving toward wealth or status or projecting an image to gain favor from others or God. And move toward finding the beauty and the power that comes with striving to be like Christ. Or maybe you come in here at the end of yourself. And maybe then Lent is an invitation to see that Jesus, who is the greatest among us, honors you, calls you beloved, and names you as great. Now I, I see the ways in which we might be doing this already as a community and the ways that so many people are living out that humble example. And I celebrate you all for doing that. But I think let is this particular moment to stop and reflect on these things of humility and recognizing the dignity that God gives to us. Perhaps as a community of faith, we can wrestle with these words from Jesus. Perhaps I as a pastor, as a leader, can wrestle with what that invitation to humility truly means. And likewise for other leaders, and people who hold positions of power, to, invite, to be invited into the being a servant of all. And perhaps as a family of faith, we can wrestle with honoring and dignifying those who might be weak or in need of care, someone new and young in the faith, or a newcomer trying to find their way. Today we come forward to receive ashes, and may it be a mark that invites us to reflect on what God might be inviting us toward, either humility or dignity, or both. And it all may be received as a reminder that we are not God, but that we need God. I want to end just by reading the poem that's in your 
worship bulletin. It's called Blessing the Dust, which is by Jan Richardson. And I, I want to read it just as a point of reflection, and it's a gift that you could take with you. And it speaks about the power of humility and the beauty found in the dust of our lives. All those days, you felt like dust, like dirt, as if all you had to do was turn your face toward the wind and be scattered to the four corners, or swept away by the smallest breath as insubstantial. Did you not know what the Holy One can do with dust? This is the day we freely say we are scorched. This is the hour we are marked by what has made it through the burning. This is the moment we ask for the blessing that lives within the ancient ashes, that makes its home inside the soil of this sacred earth. So let us be marked not for sorrow, and let us be marked not for shame. Let us be marked not for false humility or for thinking we are less than we are but for claiming what God can do within the dust, within the dirt, within the stuff of which the world is made and the stars that blaze in our bones and the galaxies that spiral inside the smudge we bear. Let's pray. God, we lift up to you this beginning of Lent, entrusting you to spiritually guide us toward the cross with your son Jesus. And along the way, show us and speak to us of what we are, that we are dust, but that we are dignified through your son who walked the cross to show us your love and to give us life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.